Bono Happy Hour. I'm Elise Tarita. Today's guest is Kim McLeod from Hun Andrews Kurth. Kim spoke to us from Richmond, Virginia, where she is based. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Kim. Thank you for joining me today. Hi, thanks for having me. So we're going to jump right in. I want to start off by asking, what were your early years like? What was your background? Um, so early years, um, sort of, I, I don't really have home, I suppose, um, which is something um, when people say, where are you from, is a sort of complicated question. But I grew up originally sort of northwest of Baltimore and spent, you know, most of my um, elementary school and early middle school years there. And then my mom and I moved to a very small town in North Carolina, which is better known as um, Mount Pilot from the Andy Griffith um, series for people who are my age and might recall that. Um, and I went to the rest of middle school, high school, and then college down in um, in North Carolina. So um, as far as what my early years were like, I mean, uh, my parents were divorced and so divorced when my mom moved to North Carolina. So I grew, grew up primarily with a single parent, um, grew up relatively, um, you know, of, of modest means at one point. Um, when I was much uh, younger, you know, we went through, you know, home foreclosure and those sort of things that are scary for kids. Um, so um, I, I would say my upbringing was very modest. I have a very tight relationship with, with my mom in particular, um, which is interesting now that I found myself as a single parent and sort of think about my relationship with her through that lens now. But um but yeah, that's sort of like, you know, what was my childhood like, sort of like that. But um, otherwise, I went to college at UNC um, in Chapel Hill, which was um, just such a great place to go to college. Um, you know, four of my best friends in the world, um, I you know, met and sort of formed relationships with there. We still all vacation together with our families um, and are huge Carolina basketball fans, and then I moved to Richmond, uh, Virginia, to go to law school at University of Richmond, sort of intending to be in Richmond for three years, and um, I've now lived in Richmond longer than I've lived anywhere. So back to my original comment, I guess Richmond has become home after all these years. Well, I've just talked about Richmond recently and how much everyone loves it, and we'll talk more about it later. So when and how did you decide to become a lawyer? It's funny, when I've been asked this question before, I don't really have a clear recollection of when I decided to become a lawyer. It just seemed like something that I was always interested in, um, which is a little bit weird because we don't have any lawyers in my family. Um, my mom never graduated from college, um, and my dad was a college graduate but um, was in sales. So I'm not sure where this love of the law came from or this sort of sense for um, – justice, but I, I knew in um, undergrad, sort of my junior year, I guess, I took a class with this really amazing adjunct professor who did a criminal law class, and she also taught a constitutional law class. Um, and once I took her classes, I really knew that that was the direction um, that I wanted to go. That's great that you like had a class that uh, was so inspiring to you and kind of kick-started your passion. So how did you get to Hunt, Hunt and Andrews Kurth? And could you tell us a little bit about the firm, which was recently Hunt and Williams until it merged with Andrews Kurth Kenyon to become the new firm? Um, this is a little bit of a funny story, but I, 
I sort of got to Hunton and Williams by accident. Um, I um, I went straight through law school, so I never had a summer that I worked. I went um, I went to school both summers um, and graduated in two and a half years. So I didn't have that sort of typical summer associate experience and a law firm to you know sort of naturally go to. So I ended up doing a judicial clerkship for a year. Um, after I graduated and was just trying to figure out where I wanted to be and um, was applying for jobs in Richmond and in Baltimore. And I ran into one of my friends from law school who was actually a year older than me. And um, uh, while I was clerking, we ran into each other downtown um, while we were grabbing lunch. And she was like, hey, why haven't you applied to Hunt and Williams? And I was like, Oh, well, it's funny you ask. I have applied to Hunt and Williams, and I got a very nice rejection letter from the firm. And uh, so apparently she went back after we uh, ran into each other and talked to the recruiting uh, administrator and said, you know, this is really somebody we should take a look at and interview. And um, so that's how I ended up getting an interview at the firm. I got a call, and there was a open sort of entry-level lateral position with the finance group um, at Hunton. And... So I interviewed for that job when I was clerking, and um, I got here that way. So not necessarily the traditional um, path to the firm. And so now I've been here for, uh, it'll be 21 years in September, so basically my whole life, as I say. Um, And um, it's just been a really great place to practice, particularly in Richmond. I mean, Hutton was founded in Richmond, you know, over 100 years ago, it was 1901, um, so it's really ingrained in the community. Um, really, any organization that you would be interested in uh, getting involved with in the, in the community, we've got folks that have been, you know, the president of those boards or, you know, donors to those organizations. We have, it's just a, such a great um, platform for community involvement in Richmond and, um in a lot of our offices and communities um, where we have offices, we have sort of similar, um, I think, relationships with the communities where we are. So, um, and as far as the merger, you know, we're also still figuring that out a little bit. Uh, the merger was just effective on April 2nd. So we're still sort of high in integration activities, but you know, I've been to Houston twice so far. I'm going back next week. Um, and uh, you know we're just doing a lot to you know make sure that we're making the most of the merger. But from a people's standpoint and sort of culture and values and all that, um, the firms are very much aligned. Um, really great people. Everybody I've met that was from the legacy firm. So um, I, I, I don't think it's ultimately going to be that different. It really is. Um, I think was a great fit for all of us. It's great that you described the firm as so active because it kind of makes sense with your uh, famed participation rate, uh, which we actually talked about on the podcast with Scotty as well. So you had mentioned how there was an opening in the finance department. Is that uh, how you got into your specialty as your fi- as a finance lawyer or was there something else? Uh, yeah, it, it really is. I mean, I, I went to to law school thinking that I was going to be a public interest lawyer. When I was at UNC Chapel Hill, I worked for a legal aid organization in Raleigh that um, their sort of mission was to work with folks with disabilities, which is a 
cause that was near and dear to my heart. And so I really went to law school very um, idealistic, maybe a little bit Pollyanna about how that was all going to go. And so, um, you know, if you had asked me then if I had ever seen myself as a corporate finance lawyer, I would have said absolutely not. I'm terrible at math. Um, you know, I shied away from um, business classes. Um, I'm sure that my mother would delight in telling you that I got a D plus in Econ 10 as a freshman. So finance didn't really seem like <laughs> really the best uh, fit for me. But um, when I got to law school and I started taking, um, you know, I took a corporate law class and then I took securities regulation and mergers and acquisitions. And I just found that I really liked um, that area of the law a lot. And I became sort of dead set on being a securities lawyer. So when I was originally interviewing for jobs, when I was clerking, um, I was looking at the SEC and firms where they had a securities regulation practice. Um, so when I came here and interviewed the partners with him, I interviewed sort of convinced me that the nature of what I was going to be doing was close enough to securities reg. And um, I just really liked the people that I met with. Um, it seemed like from a personality standpoint, it would be a really great group to work with, people that I'd be comfortable working with. And that was really important to me, particularly since I hadn't had that um, summer experience and that opportunity to kind of try things on. Um, so I took a little bit of a leap of faith and um, and came to the Capital Finance Group at Hunton. So um, I'm not. I guess I chose that specialty. Um, although I, in some ways I think it was a little bit of a leap of faith and and kind of falling into it as much as anything. But it definitely has been a great fit. It's great that it worked out. It's kind of almost like you chose it, it chose you kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so we're going to shift to talk about uh, more of the pro bono work. So we've discussed the firm's pro bono program before with our podcast rock star, Scotty Brown, who is your colleague. What do you think are the program's hallmarks or outstanding features, and how do you describe the firm's commitment to service and access to justice? Um, as far as hallmarks or outstanding features of Hunton's pro bono program, you know, I think one of the easiest ones to talk about, although it's not the easiest to accomplish, is um, for the last nine years we've had 100% of our lawyers in the U.S. do pro bono uh, each year. Um, and we've been told by folks like Jim Salmon that there really are no other firms of our size that can sort of boast that type of commitment to pro bono. So um, that is sort of our North Star of pro bono. Um, we also were you know, one of the early signatories to the PBI pro bono um, law firm challenge. Um, and under George Hetrick's leadership, um, for all the years that George was in charge of pro bono here at Hunton, um, you know, the accolades that George won for the firm um, and in his own name, I mean, he just really drove this program in a way that, um, again, I think there are, I would venture a guess that there may be no other firm um, that has had this sort of strength of personality and commitment to the to pro bono that Hunton had and has, um, will continue to have, but had under George's um, leadership. It is just part of the fabric here. It is um, 
literally ingrained in our partnership agreement. The first um, few lines of our partnership agreement talk about, you know, the practice of law being a service to society, and um, it's just really just part of who we are. It's great. We're um, a huge fan of George here as well. Uh, so thanks for sharing a little about him. So as the chair of the firm's pro bono committee, which is actually something we talk about a lot, committees here, how do you spend your time and what is your role and function? Um, so as the chair, um, I spend a lot of time talking to Scotty Brown, who I know we mentioned earlier, who was our sort of firm-wide pro bono administrator. Um, so you know, my main job as the chair of the pro bono committee is you know, to make sure and be supportive of all of our offices. Each of our offices has um, its own pro bono committee that's comprised of partners and associates and counsel in those offices that are um, really involved in pro bono and, and driving pro bono engagement in those offices. But um, the chairs and co-chairs of each office committee comprises our firm-wide pro bono committee, and that's the committee I chair. So I spend a lot of time with Scotty, you know, going through um, pro bono opportunities and that different offices float up, you know, making sure um, that folks are engaged, making sure that we have opportunities uh, for folks to be engaged in, uh, thinking about uh, pro bono partnerships with clients. That's something that we're trying to do um, more of. Um, and, you know, a lot of it is more of a policy and administrative role um, as much as anything, but really just being the face of pro bono at, at the firm and, and um, driving um, driving our participation and making sure, you know, to the extent that we have lawyers who haven't found a project, ha helping to connect them with projects, um, helping to decide, you know, what major cases um, we're going to take on. Um, and then... Uh, I, you and Scotty may have talked about this in a in a, the previous podcast, but we also have you know pro bono fellows in certain of our offices. So um, again, helping to sort of oversee those fellows' engagement with our pro bono partners um, in those cities and um, and the whole hiring and all that sort of administrative side of the process as well. So you are balancing this role as chair of the firm's pro bono committee with your busy practice group. How do you balance this role and is there anything which you could be doing more or less of? Well, I'm still learning how to balance it because this is all re relatively new. Um, George um, just officially retired on April 1st. He had sort of stepped back the year before that. So I was um, in this role the year before, but before he officially retired. But um, I would say I'm still learning how to do it, but um, my, my number one thing maybe is I, I just hate to have things on my to-do list. And um, so I just, to the extent that Scotty, you know, Scotty and I meet every other um, week. Um, we have a regularly scheduled meeting and we meet ad hoc in between, but to the extent that you know, she reaches out to me in between or I've got anything coming in from a committee, I try to just tackle those things right away and and give it the same priority as I give, you know, my paying clients um, because it's important and it's important to you know, be responsive and make sure to the extent that I might be the holdup between, you know, somebody getting pro bono legal service or not that, 
I'm jumping on top of that. So it's a challenge like everything else. And it's, you know, it's a challenge to balance non-billable commitments with billable. This just happens to be a new non-billable commitment. I always have been heavily involved in the firm's recruiting. Um, one thing I did at the time that I agreed to take on the, the pro bono chair as I stepped down as um, one of our two firm-wide hiring partners. So sort of shed some uh, administrative responsibilities there to take on, make room for um, this new challenge. But um, I've always been one to probably have um, my hands in too many things at once. Um, but, you know, juggling, particularly, you know, being a single parent and having teenagers and all of that, it's always a challenge. And I'm not sure that you ever um, figure it out, you know, for good. You figure it out for today or for the week, and then you see what next week brings. Sounds like you are definitely a master in multitasking. <laughs> I don't know if I would say master, but um, I, I'm I'm pretty good at multitasking, yeah. So as I said, a hot topic for a lot of our listeners um, is law firm pro bono committees. As a chair, do you have advice on how to run a committee or what makes for an effective pro bono committee? I would say that pro bono by its nature is local. So yeah, I really view my job as um, providing support and guidance to our committees in each of our offices as opposed to really being the driver of pro bono in those offices. I mean, the, the organizations that we work with in, you know, Dallas are very different than the organizations we work with in Richmond or New York. And so just, you know, being supportive, picking the right leaders um, in those offices, people that are willing to go knock on doors and sit in people's offices and, you know, get them involved with projects to put their names out there and actually make the ask of people to get them involved with projects. I mean, you've got to have people on your local pro bono committees that uh, folks in the offices respect and will respond to and folks that are willing to put themselves out there a little bit. So I really view this as, you know, again, my job is more administrative and policy in nature in a lot of ways. And what I really want to do is empower people to um, run their committees in a way that is right for, you know, the Dallas market or is right for New York or um, San Francisco or any other place that we are because those people are invested in those lawyers in our offices are invested in their communities. Um, they have relationships with lawyers in our offices. Um, and so I think you really have to find the right folks to staff those committees and, um, again, empower them to go out and do what they need to do to get stuff done. So you were just mentioning getting people involved. What have you found works best to incentivize and engage your lawyers to do the pro bono work? Gosh, I wish I had the magic answer on that one. And I know there's all sorts of uh, people have tried, you know, giving people gold stars and plaques and all sorts of, there have been lots of studies on um, what motivates people uh, and incentivizes them to take on cases. But, um, I mean, to me, I think every opportunity we have to, um, 
have our lawyers meet our pro bono clients or hear testimonials from pro bono clients about what a difference it makes to have someone by your side in your court proceeding, how how much better outcomes are for pro bono clients when they have a lawyer standing up beside them in court and what a difference it, it meant to their lives. Um, I think we forget sometimes um, as lawyers in large firms that in many of these cases that our client, our pro bono clients are dealing with, this is probably the single most scary or uh, emotional thing that they may have dealt with in their lives. And um, I think we sort of forget how foreign um, the justice system is to those who don't have legal backgrounds. So, um, you know, whether or not plaques work and stars work or just, you know, beating on people <laughs> to get them to actually do it, um, I really do think the the firsthand um, the, the testimonials, the exposure, bringing pro bono clients into lunches or um, just finding opportunities that people can hear directly from clients what a difference it makes um, and hear directly from organizational um, pro bono uh, organizations, nonprofits in the community about what things are like on the ground and what the challenges are. We try to do a fair amount of um, in each, each of our offices, pro bono training weeks where we have organizations come in and talk about what they do and what their needs are and what they're seeing in the community. Um, I just think being a little bit granular about that, the, the more you can sort of, I don't want to say pull on people's heartstrings because that's not really it, but make people feel connected to what is actually going on outside of our our um, office buildings and what's going on in in the in our broader community. But almost a different um, part of our community than so many of us see. I went to a breakfast talk recently for a nonprofit where if you live in Richmond, you see everybody's got stickers around the RVA, which is like our new hip Richmond, Virginia. So everything is RVA this and RVA that. And the, the guy who was talking was saying, you know, we all live in RVA. That's the cool hip happening, you know, up and coming with breweries and restaurants and tourism, and that's RVA. But the majority of people in Richmond live in Richmond, and that's a very different experience for them. So I think the more you can connect people, and, and using that Richmond example, the more you can connect people who live in RVA to the people who live in Richmond, uh, the better you are, and I think the more motivated people are to take on cases. Yeah, I think the personal appeal is definitely a way. Like you said, it's not just pulling on the heartstrings. I think it's people seeing the real impact that their work can have. And that might be kind of the driving force. So you were talking about the Richmond area and kind of what it's become, because I've kind of heard the same thing about Richmond being the hit place recently. But what is the pro bono and access to justice culture like in the Richmond area? I would say it's not really any different than probably most places. Um, you know, access to justice is a problem everywhere and you know, budgetary constraints for legal aid and um, grant funding for uh, nonprofits that are doing access to justice work. Um, I, I really don't think it's uh, that different than anywhere else, which is to say, you know, it's it's tenuous and uh, if you look at the numbers, probably uh, for those of us who care about access to justice and 
uh, rule of law and people having representation, you know, pretty scary as far as what's going on, not just in Richmond, but just um, around the country. Um, when you look at the number of people who go to court unrepresented and what their outcomes are like compared to people who do have someone with them. Um, in, in the most basic areas, um, Richmond just got flagged um, and there was an article in the New York Times and, you know, the book Evicted talked about, you know, the number of evictions in, in Richmond. Um, so just the very basic, you know, where do you have, do you have a place to live? Um, so it's a problem and it's, you know, we're always trying to find other ways, other projects to get involved in and ways to help, but, um, you know, resources are limited. Human resources are limited too, as well as, you know, financial resources. So um, I think it looks a lot like it looks in a lot of other places in the country. Um, I wish I could say something different. And I wish I could say something different about what access to justice look like, you know, more generally in the country, but um, it feels like we're not in a great place um, with everything that's going on right now. Yeah, the justice gap is uh, definitely a wide one. Uh, Tammy Taylor and I just went to an exhibit about that book, Evicted, and just looking at like the visual representation of the numbers of the representing the problem was a uh, pretty shocking because obviously it's something you know about, but when you see it, kind of like comparison all the states like that, um, it's jarring. So we're gonna talk about um, now that your kind of pro bono work. So you serve as a member of the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project Screening Committee. How did you get involved with that organization? Could you tell us a little more about that? Uh, sure. I got involved with um, the Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project uh, through Sean Armbrush, who is the executive director. And Sean, as she was trying to expand um, uh, her law firm partners, uh, many of whom were, so Mid-Atlantic Innocence Project covers Maryland, D.C. and Virginia, so they were looking for some firms in Virginia to get involved, and um, and despite being a finance lawyer, you know, it's like, you know, finance lawyers always secretly have desires to, you know, be litigators, even though that terrifies us, so Innocence Project cases were always ones that interested me, and um so Sean uh, approached us about forming a screening committee um, at Hunton, and I ended up volunteering to sort of head that up. Um, and we've been involved with the Innocence Project for probably at least 15 years now. Um, and one of the first, you know, major things we did with Innocence Project is Sean came down and she had. Um, this was Sean's pitch for us to take uh, Mike Cash's case. Um, and, you know, for those who are listening that aren't familiar with that case, it's one worth Googling and reading about a bit. But um, Mike Cash was, I believe, uh, 17 when he was convicted of a murder that he did not commit um, along. He was charged with a couple uh, co-defendants. Um, but he was the only one who went to prison um, for the murder. And so Sean came down with what uh, I learned was Mike's mom's scrapbook. And it was, the, as a mother, it was the saddest scrapbook you've ever seen because it was a scrapbook about Mike's arrest and his trials and 
she had you know, newspaper clippings from his co-defendant's trial, and it basically was the scrapbook of, you know, Mike's wrongful conviction. Um, and so Sean pitched it to Hutton to take the case, and we have a, a partner in our Richmond office named Matt Bosher who um, had been at a firm in New York before he moved to Richmond and had done a habeas case in New York. Um, and Matt agreed to take the lead on the case. Um, and so that was the, the first um, casework I had done other than being on the screening committee. The screening committee is really just a, um, a resource for the Innocence Project to have attorneys look at applications that come in from prisoners and evaluate whether or not we think there's anything that the project can do to anything they can go on as far as there's DNA that hasn't been tested or there are, you know, witnesses who weren't interviewed or, um, you know, there's a witness who's recanted and we've got an affidavit that they've recanted, those sort of things, just whether or not there's any credible evidence of innocence um, or, or something that the project can go on. And so there are probably 20 more or more lawyers um, at Hunton that sit on that committee now too. But um, it's such a great organization and they've had such success um, in freeing. They just had someone freed in Maryland who'd been in prison for 30 years um, for a crime he didn't commit. So again, when you talk about you know, access to justice and rule of law and, um, you know, particularly with the death penalty still sort of floating out there and in play in many states. Um, it's just an organization that I think is critically important to enforcing um, enforcing more discipline around, you know, witness interviews and uh, witness IDs and, you know, what kind of science we're using to um, and have used to convict people of crimes. That sounds like a moving work probably to also read through case after case uh, that you have to screen through and hear about all the injustices. So what are, or are there any examples of pro bono cases that have been particularly meaningful to you? I think um, the cases to me that, are most meaningful, I, I really think, are just the ones that aren't so glamorous. I mean, um, the cases that I enjoy and, and the ones I do routinely are, I, I do guardianship cases for um, families in Richmond, most often parents who have a seriously disabled child who is you know, now coming into adulthood and their, the parents need to be appointed officially as the guardian of that child, um, or, you know, um, Children seeking to be appointed the guardian of their aging um, parents, often with you know, dementia or Alzheimer's, to make sure they're not being taken advantage of by others. So um, that's something that you know was really, really critically important to George, and part of his um, sort of drumbeat is you know pro bono doesn't have to be sexy in order for it to be important. I mean, sometimes just helping poor people and poor people who need a place to live or they need to be able to make medical decisions for their um, developmentally delayed children or, um, you know, people who have been <laughs> married to someone for 20 years that just want their no-fault divorce to go through so they can start over again. Um, you know, I think 
the most meaningful pro bono is sort of the most basic and it doesn't have to be splashy or headline in order for it to be meaningful. Um, so um, that maybe is not such a glamorous answer, but I think it's the true answer. Yeah, I think the important thing for people to remember is that pro bono isn't always glitzy. It's not always that, you know, death penalty case or something high profile. The bread and butter stuff is really important and it matters too. And these are people who equally need help. And it's great that there's people who recognize that and um, really like value doing that work. Well, I think you you see um, you see people who, and you know, when you meet with your clients and, you know, You've I've had clients who have, you know, children who have had birth related injuries and have cerebral palsy and have been in wheelchairs their entire lives and you know, you get a glimpse of what that that life is like as a parent and what and what um your client is dealing with on a daily basis just from a the logistics and making sure that their their child is getting the best care, is getting the best education, is getting uh, the right opportunities, is getting the the right medical care. Um, I think when you you spend time with your clients like that, and and again, in such a simple what seems like such a simple, straightforward matter, but it makes such a huge difference to them, and it's very grounding too. You know, you have. I usually come back from those cases and, and go into court on those cases and just kind of have to take a deep breath and be incredibly grateful for, you know, what I have. And, you know, as complex as my life seems at times with, you know, kids and job and, and uh, clients and, and non-billable obligations, it, it all just puts it in a different um, perspective. Definitely. So earlier we discussed the merger and I know it's, still new and you're still working through it, kind of figuring out what the end result's going to be like. But um, what's on the horizon for the pro bono program? We're really just focusing on integration at this point. And um, we just got our um, our Houston. Um, so Anders and Karth didn't have the same pro bono structure that we did. Um, it wasn't as formalized as ours is. So um, we just got our Houston office pro bono committee up and running. Um, Scotty and I went down to Houston for that committee's first pro bono meeting and the office had a pro bono lunch that afternoon when they brought in um, a couple different uh, legal service providers, uh, including KIND um, and Catholic Charities to talk about pro bono opportunities in the Houston uh, legal market. So we're really just focusing on, you know, getting that all up and running um, while, of course, not letting anything fall apart on the <laughs> structure that's already in place. But then also, you know, again, to my point earlier about it being important to have people on committees with credibility and people that are willing to go talk to folks, um, you know, we spent time identifying lawyers um, that are from the legacy Andrews Curse um offices, you know, in D.C. and in Dallas and New York to go on to those existing committees there just to make sure that we've rounded out those committees, that they're truly now representative of, of the post-merger firm and that everybody is rowing in the same direction. Great. Uh, we're looking forward to hearing more about it. So it's summer associate season, and I know summering isn't something you didn't get to do, but what advice do you have for law students or lawyers who are just starting their careers? Um, wow. <laughs> that one's a broad one, but um I think um 
one one piece of advice that I give to students, I do a lot of uh still do a lot of on campus interviewing. Um and I feel like there's so much pressure put on um law students in particular to make this decision about where they want to be um for the summer and what that means for where they're gonna be um after law school and that there's this real sense of um permanence to that, that, you know, you can't change your mind or whatever you're deciding is going to be the thing that you're going to be um, forever. And so one thing I always talk to students about is, you know, some of this is a leap of faith. Like mine worked out all right. I'm pretty happy with how my leap of faith worked out. But you might make that leap of faith and find out it it was not the right choice for you. But that doesn't mean that it's unchangeable um, or that you're stuck. Um, so, um you know, one thing I talk to students about a fair amount is like ease up the pressure on yourself, make the best decision that you can, you know, get all the information you need, you think you need to make a decision because information is power and um, asking all the questions and making sure you're satisfied that you have all the answers that you need to make a decision is critical. But then make that decision, um, you know, best you can and move on. And if it turned out to be the wrong decision, don't beat yourself up about it. You know, we all make mistakes in life. Um, but you know, you're not committing to anything that is unchangeable. Um, and if you find that, you know, four or five years down the road that being in a law firm or being in legal aid or being wherever you chose to be is not where you want to be, then change it then. Um, but put a little less pressure on yourself for how critical this decision is. And, like there's, you know, only one fork in the road. There are awfully there are an awful lot of forks in the road you'll find as you sort of get older and grow into your career a little bit further. That's great advice. And I think it truly resonates with kind of all young people putting so much pressure on themselves to kind of get it right the first time and kind of figure it out. And you're totally right that like you don't have to be unhappy in a choice you make. You make a choice and it can definitely always be another choice to change it. So right. Going to go to a more specific kind of advice. As a legal profession, like other professions, continues to struggle with gender equity issues, do you have any specific guidance for women? Um, I have lots of things I say to women often about um, gender equity issues, but um, yeah, again, from a from a looking at employers' perspective, I think it's important to look at all the statistics and ask questions of young people that um, that you have a comfortable relationship with as you go through the interview or other process um, um, about what their lives are like. I mean, one of the things that I, uh, and we've been talking a lot about it at Hunton lately and we have a women's mentoring group um, and we meet for lunch once a month. And one thing we've been talking about a fair amount is um, that there are all these statistics out there that show that one of the primary problems that law firms have with retaining talented women and minorities is that those folks don't see um, mentors or people ahead of them that have lives that they aspire to, which is a little bit sad to think about. <laughs> you know, you hope that's not somebody's moral judgment on the, the life and, and the career path you've chosen and more, I think that we don't always do a really good job of being open about um, 
how hard it is sometimes or what our past look like or when we've struggled that it just looks like insto presto you became a partner with very few you know struggles along the way um whereas you know I can tell you and look thinking about a few women partners who on the surface look just like me you know they've got two kids they're about the same age as mine they're you know got married at a certain age and whatever our stories are all really different so you know, I think talking to people, being um, on both sides of that equation, I've said to lots of female partners here, we need to be more open um, about um, our own stories and our own lives and more open to answering questions about things. But you got to ask those questions, too. Um, and I think for women, it's critical. I mean, I can't speak to what it's like to work anywhere else other than at Hunton um, or in a large law firm because that, that really is the sum of my work experience. But, you know, from a law firm perspective, Hunton is not really any better or worse than any other large law firm out there. The percentage of women equity partners is still disproportionately low to um you know, white male equity partners. Um, are we doing just as well as everyone else? Yeah, but as a whole, are we doing, <laughs> is the industry doing great? No. Um, but, you know, you have to, as a woman, um, I think, you know, come into your job and spend the time to not just be an excellent lawyer, but you have to develop relationships with people. Um, you have to find those people who's, who, you look at their life and say, yeah, I might like my life to be like that in five years. Oh, here's what I'd like to be in 10 years. Here's where I'd like to be in 15 years. Um, and invest in, in networking and building those relationships so that um, it seems a little bit more relatable. It, it feels more achievable because you know the people ahead of you have had you know, imperfect struggles as well. Um, so, you know, I just think there's a – I was kidding earlier about, you know, having my hands in, in too many things probably even before this, but, you know, you, you have to invest that time. It's it's not enough just to be an excellent attorney anymore. You have to develop those relationships and, and spend time, you know, seeking mentors um, and spending time with them and sort of figuring it all out. Yeah, I think as the landscape changes and it's moving towards this, that we'll be able to be more open and more honest about kind of the paths we took to kind of achieve the success. Like you said, like everything might look like the same situation, but we all have different stories. And we we all have days we all have days where, you know, it may look great from the outside, but it feels like it's held together by duct tape. You know, it just or you're hanging on by your fingernails. There just are going to be days like that. Um, and I think you're right. I think the landscape is changing um, in the sense that people are more open about things that are going on in their lives or even where they're going, um, you know, leaving work to go to your um, your child's, you know, after school activity or to go to a parent teacher conference. I think folks are a lot more open about that, too. Um, not that people weren't doing those things before. I think they probably were. They were just um, being more secretive about what they were doing or not saying where they were going. And I think the more open we are about those things too, the easier it makes us for people who are, you know, coming along behind us. Definitely. 
So I know there are a lot of things that you might want to change about law firm pro bono or the access to justice. But what's one thing you would change? Well, if I had a magic wand, then everyone gets a great attorney and, you know, has representation. Um, I think that's the number one thing that we could do. I, mean, I think the general public, and I think this is fairly well documented, doesn't understand that um, there is no right to an attorney in a in a civil matter. Um, you know, lots of folks learn what they learn about the law from TV, and you know, you have the right to an attorney. Well, that's only in you know criminal cases, and even then, only certain ones. So, um, you know, I think that's a that is the one thing that we could change about um, access to justice that would be the most meaningful. So, but that would take a magic wand. I'm pretty sure to be sure that everybody had an attorney when they needed one in a criminal or a um, civil proceeding. And not to say an attorney, you know, a, a competent attorney, because, you know, unfortunately, that doesn't always happen either. Even when folks are, you know, having a right to an attorney, they don't always get um, good ones or they get ones that are, you know, their caseloads are so over overwhelming that, um, you know, through probably no fault of their own. It's almost malpractice to try to juggle it all because they're just so um, overwhelmed by their caseload that they can't do the type of job on the case that they would do if they had unlimited time and resources. You're definitely right. That is a, a common misconception that the public has about the nature of like who gets an attorney. Uh, oh, but you can just get a free attorney. It's fine. Like you said, they're not all equal because everything is overloaded. So we're going to end with a final question. Who is your pro bono role model slash access to justice role model and why? Brian Stevenson, um, who is the author of a book called Just Mercy. Um, if you haven't read it, I highly recommend it. Um, and he runs a nonprofit in Montgomery, Alabama that is focused on um, – he started off as you know taking uh, – death penalty cases and wrongful convictions, but it's sort of his nonprofit has moved to more broadly address um, essential, essentially, you know, um, life sentences for children um, when children can be tried as adults. I think he's argued like four or five cases before the Supreme Court. Um, yeah, but he's a guy who went to Harvard and um, probably had every opportunity to do all sorts of other things, but he moved to, I think he worked for a summer for a capital project in Atlanta, Georgia, and then basically picked up and moved to Alabama and started this project. And he's, um, uh, his book will make you cry, and if you ever have an opportunity to speak, he'll probably make you cry there too, but um, incredibly inspirational and just... I have so much respect for people who have um, had the courage to make it their life's work. Um, and he's just, he's an amazing guy. He's definitely a great choice. Um, we've written about Just Mercy on our uh, blog before. So if anyone wants to learn more about it, they can check it out there. So thank you, Kim, for joining us today. I really enjoyed our conversation. It was very inspiring. I enjoyed it too. Thank you. New and archived episodes of the podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. Please take a moment to leave an Apple Podcast review. It is quick and easy to do. 
We appreciate the feedback and would help us make it easier for other listeners to find the show and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and questions to pro bono at probonoinst.org. Looking forward to the PBI annual dinner? The dinner will be held at Gotham Hall in New York City on Thursday night, October 4th. More information can be found on our website, probonoinst.org, or call Danny Reed at 202-729-6691.